And I often use the phrase that Main Street moviegoing is back, alive and well, plenty robust as we see these audience and traffic figures building week over week. There are some Wall Street issues that differ from Main Street, some Wall Street capital issues that differ, whether it's in a different business, like you'll see different restaurants opening and closing, you know, in a neighborhood. They didn't all survive the pandemic the same way. And just just as that's the case in any kind of different industry, so too with the movie business and the exhibition business, we've seen while Main Street movie going is alive well and returning very healthily, there are different capital stresses and different capital pressures that uh, exist for different exhibitors. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And in this week's episode, we've got John Pertilia, the CEO of Screen Vision Media, one of the nation's largest cinema advertising networks, joining us to talk all about the world of cinema advertising, coming off the heels of the company's upfront event in New York City that brought together a number of the leading advertising brands around the country to really evangelize the power of what movie theaters can bring to advertisers. Of course, the pre-show being a huge component of the recovery effort for exhibitors, that is coming up in our feature segment. But before we get into that, in our new segment, I'm joined by my colleague, Romeo Duchenne from the box office company. We'll be going over the opening weekend of Disney's The Little Mermaid, the live action remake of the animated classic. And we will also be previewing Sony's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse coming out this Friday. One of my favorite uh, comic book movies ever was uh, the previous entry in this franchise. I'm excited to go into detail with Romeo on everything. So Romeo, welcome. Uh, I know you had a big weekend of sitting on your couch because we are recording (laughs) this days after the Monaco Grand Prix and we have a Monegasque as yourself here joining us. A wonderful place. I've been there a numerous time. I mean, it's where you have tax-dodging athletes and James Bond villains living in <laughs> harmony with, I don't know, people I work with. Uh, so welcome. Hello, Daniel. Hello, everyone. Always good to speak to my New Yorker friend on the Memorial Day weekend. But yeah, like like you just said, I'm a bit tired since I had to wake up at 4.45 a.m. on a Sunday. It's a pain in the ass to follow Formula One from L.A. But, you know, Not I come easy. from this place where everything stops right after the Cannes Film Festival, so um, I had to wake up for that. That's the beginning of like French summer, right? Cannes Film Festival ends, and it's just you guys stop working until I don't know October. I'm trying oh to, I'm God, trying to catch bad. up. I've been no working bad. with French people for a decade now. I'm still trying to get used to your schedule. That's pretty well known that during the month of May, you yeah yeah you usually work four days a week, maybe three. <laughs> And here we are coming off a holiday weekend at the box office with the opening of The Little Mermaid. We had a little bit of a disappointing result here, I think in context, of course. Could you go over what that domestic figure for the opening weekend, the three-day weekend that we have from Disney, and then we can also go over what the four-day weekend estimate is from the studio, which includes the Monday frame for The Little Mermaid live-action remake. Yeah, so Daniel, for the Little Mermaid um, domestic opening weekend for the free day, like you just said, that with more than $50 million coming from China, and it will definitely not be the case for Little Mermaid. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of setting up this conversation, as you note. If we look at a property like The Little Mermaid, it's not going to be a like-for-like like comparison with The Lion King, if you look at those demographics. Probably the best comparison here in how it 
fell short at the domestic box office is 2017's Beauty and the Beast, which opened to 174.7 million. That's 45% ahead of this opening weekend from The Little Mermaid. That's alarming. You do bring up that good point where Aladdin, the live action remake of Aladdin that came out in 2019, opened actually below this one. Aladdin opening to 91.5 million on a three day frame domestically. And yes, that movie ended up making a billion dollars worldwide. Thanks, crucially, to the performance of China. The Little Mermaid, however, will not have the Chinese market to to help it because, uh, wow, going over these overseas numbers, it wasn't a strong start for this title. Let's break it down by region, Romeo, because I think that's always easier to look at the global numbers instead of just lumping everything outside of North America in one vague sum here. Let's start with Asia Pacific and let's start with what happened in China because these numbers are quite disappointing here. Very disappointing. I think it's probably one of the worst Disney opening in uh, in China, and uh, The Little Mermaid opened with only two point five million dollars. So I don't think they can amass more than uh, than fifteen million dollars coming from uh, from China. I mean, it could be already something good. So yeah, and then like I said, Aladdin uh, br- bringing more than fifty million dollars from China. China is a major piece for the international uh, box office, like we've just keeping saying uh, for the past few years now. So yeah, it's not a good a good thing for for the little mermaid here are there any other markets in the asia pacific region outside of china where at least the little mermaid can recover some traction here yeah definitely uh, the little mermaid open uh, first in australia as well as in philippines new zealand and thailand so still some good news from uh, asia pacific little mermaid open at the second spot in hong kong taiwan indonesia singapore Malaysia, Vietnam, and India. So still good, uh, good ranking, good figures from uh, some other country from uh, Asia Pacific. But uh, yeah, sorry, I have to bring that again. China is the major bad news here. And without China, I don't think it's going to be uh, easy sailing for the Little Mermaid in the Asia Pacific region. Let's keep on moving here to other regions around the world. Romeo, of course, with your accent, we got to bring it up. <laughs> Europe, EMEA, what did we see in those markets? Because obviously the UK is a big country for these sort of titles, but you've also got other key markets like Italy, France, Spain, where this movie opened. Yeah, The Little Mermaid opened um, very well in, uh, in Europe, amassed more than $30 million for its opening weekend. Opened first in France, opened first in Italy, Spain, UK, as well as Denmark, Finland, Greece, Iceland, Kuwait, Norway, Qatar, Serbia, and Sweden. So a lot of countries in Europe where The Little Mermaid opened first. They also opened at the second spot Sorry for all other matter markets, with exception of Poland and Czech Republic. And that includes the third highest opening weekend of the year in Spain, where it opened to 3.6 million. UK coming in as the number two overseas opener with 6.3 million this weekend. And of course, on the top spot, as usually is the case with these uh, Disney titles, Mexico coming in and overperforming anytime you have a family movie. Disney, a major brand in that Mexican market. Mexico opening to $8.5 million over the weekend. Unfortunately, $8.5 million is the most that this movie earns outside of North America in any individual territory. What does LADAM look as a whole after this opening weekend, Romeo? As a whole, they amassed more than $20 million for, for the opening weekend. And like, you, like you just said, first in Mexico, first in Peru. They, they are quite outperforming in, uh, in this region, uh, opening uh, like 48% ahead of Cinderella, 100% ahead of Jungle Book, 2% ahead of Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, and only like 6% below Aladdin. 
again, just like Spain, is the first highest opening weekend of 2023 in Argentina. So very good news from uh, from Argentina. And the fourth of, uh, highest opening weekend of 2023 in Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia. So um, the little moment bring a little boost of the Latin America box office uh, this weekend. Looking elsewhere at the box office, Fast X has now crossed the half billion dollar mark globally. Nearing half a billion overseas as well. We've been saying it for a long time now. Don't count out this Fast and the Furious franchise outside of North America. Already over $400 million in box office outside of the US and Canada for Fast X. We'll see how that legs out in the coming weekends because we do have another big opener here this weekend, Romeo. Let's go into the preview section of what audiences can expect on Friday from Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse opening from Sony, the animated sequel to one of my favorite comic book movies of all time. A lot of data points to go over here. It's unfair to lump this in with live action Spider-Man movies. So what are the benchmarks we're looking at here, both domestically and globally for this title? The first one did $35 million for its opening weekend in the US, uh, accumulating $190 million in the US with um, almost $400 million one ride, $385 million. It was a great, great score. But uh, I think the whole market is thinking that the second one could, could go uh, way higher than the first one. We can also quote Sonic 2 that has been released by Paramount in April 2022 that did $82 million for this opening weekend and ending its run in the US around $172 million. We do think that um, Spider-Man uh, Across the Spider-Verse will go above the, this uh, Sonic 2 uh, title from, uh, from Paramount. So our estimate right now for the domestic market is around $100 million, uh, $108 million for its opening weekend. When we look into the trader data, the second official trailer for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is uh, overtaking the, the second trailer of the first uh, opus. So good news from uh, trailer chip data. Also going from uh, Google search, but also our uh, B2C movie website search all around the world. The second one is tracking above the first one. So I don't think Sony has anything to worry about. And as you mentioned, trailer viewership data that we're tracking through our YouTube channels is overperforming all comparables here. Google search data, people are already looking up this title. They're interested in watching it. I think we are expecting, as you mentioned, a $100 million plus opening weekend. If you want to find out more about this movie, you can go to our website, boxofficepro.com, where you can read my interview with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse co-director Kemp Powers. Kemp and I had a wonderful conversation uh, going over the entire production of this movie, Kemp Powers, uh, you might remember, is the screenwriter and original playwright of uh, One Night in Miami, which uh, came out from uh, Amazon Films or Amazon Studios Films. I don't even know what they call themselves these days, but that came out in 2020. Very interesting drama. He also co-directed Soul, a very strong Pixar movie that unfortunately didn't receive a theatrical release. We had a wonderful conversation going over his own excitement as a co-director of a movie like this to finally have that big global launch in theaters. And that'll definitely be happening this Friday. As we mentioned, strong, strong expectations for this movie. We expect a fantastic, fantastic year at the box office. And to tell us more about that, we've got John Pertilia, the CEO of Screen Vision Media, a leading cinema advertising company here in North America, to tell us everything about the market, his perspective on where the box office is going to end up this year, and what exhibitors can expect from 
the advertising sector to help them make that additional revenue in 2023. That's coming up right after the break. Romeo, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Always, uh, always great to speak uh, with you guys. And it's always great to have you, Romeo. And now we are going over to a message from our sponsor, Screen Division Media, before we launch right into that conversation with John Portilla coming up right after the break. Screen Vision Media is a national leader in delivering comprehensive advertising and content representation for top-tier cinema exhibitors, including three of the top five nationwide. Screen Vision Cinema Advertising Network provides national coverage spanning 94% of DMAs and comprising over 2,000 theaters and over 13,500 screens. National advertisers are drawn to the strengths of Screen Vision's network. There is simply no substitute to reach the young, diverse, and highly engaged audience coupled with precise measurement and big screen impact that cinema consistently delivers. To find out more, visit ScreenVision.com. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with a good friend of ours, John Partilia, JP, as he's yes. known here in the industry, the Chief Executive Officer of Screen Vision Media. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Rebecca. Very glad to be here today. And we're having this conversation like days after your uh, your upfront here in New York City. You had a room full of advertisers, media buyers, exhibitors, people from this industry. Rebecca and I were there. It was a good time. Great time. Great time. It always is. Busta Rhymes showed up. He I grew sure up did. on his music. And he by did. The way. He, he did bust a few rhymes out there. He did. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about uh, everything Screen Vision here, uh, JP, because yeah. it's been a great year, I think, for the box office. We, we've had great a great recovery in Q1. I think Q2 looks fantastic. Early agreed and great. agreed. But for the cinema advertising sector as a whole, because we know between vendors, there is a different sort of recovery for all of us. We are all on different timelines, all of them dependent on our exhibitor partners recovering, getting back on their feet. What's the status right now of cinema advertising in the United States? Well, thank you for that question, which leads right into my wheelhouse. So, And, and by the way, I'm just very glad to be here. And thank you for taking the time to come to our upfront, both of you. So. We are in very active, highly engaged advertiser discussions and have been really since the back half of last year as we came out of the worst of the pandemic. But the advertisers have really heavily leaned in and engaged since about the middle of Q1. And then with the really resounding success of Super Mario Brothers, they are really now you know, calling us and pushing us for active conversation. One of the things that uh, it does come up, right? There's there's varying degrees of perception of the health of the industry, Dan, as you just mentioned. And I often use the phrase that Main Street moviegoing is back, alive and well, plenty robust, as we see these audience and traffic figures building week over week. There are some Wall Street issues that differ from Main Street, some Wall Street capital issues that differ, whether it's in a different business, like you'll see different restaurants opening and closing, mm-hmm. you know, in a neighborhood. They didn't all survive the pandemic the same way. And just just as that's the case in any kind of different industry, so too with the movie business and the exhibition business, we've seen while Main Street movie going is alive, well, and returning very healthily, there are different capital stresses and different capital pressures that uh, exist for different exhibitors. And I won't obviously touch on anyone specifically, but what I make sure to say and reinforce, and our team does the same thing when we're out there with the Madison Avenue advertisers, we say, what's most important is that business is alive and well on Main Street, and there are different capital pressures and stresses that are going on with different exhibitors, but they are working their way through that. 
And so they continue to lean back in, meaning the advertising community. I mean, I know just for, for myself personally, um, I've gone to the movies far more these past six months to a year, really, than I did before on average. It's something that I, that I think a lot of people kind of remembered that they love. From an cinema advertising perspective, from, from Three Vision's point of view, how do you communicate that message that the value of the cinema experience to these other industries, to these other companies? Oh, it's a, it's yeah, it, it's another great question. So it is something that we're really driving home with even more urgency and I think vitality than ever before. And we mentioned a little bit about this in the upfront on Tuesday evening, but of course I'm biased, right? And our team is biased because we're out there to sell our, our medium, right? Our platform, the, the great, I'd say, cathedral storytelling, cinema advertising. And we've always known and talked about how it's a captive and highly engaged audience. But let me back up a half a step and talk about the broader landscape for a second and what's going on and the challenges that are that the media buyers and planners and brand managers are confronting right now. Mm-hmm. And what the challenge they're confronting right now is one of the largest weapons or tools in a marketer's arsenal for many, many years has been broadcast or slash linear television. And that's where many a media plan has started since I've been in the in the business for now. 30 plus years, I guess the plus is getting a little bigger every year. Um, they, you know, it, it, a lot of plans began with a broadcast television, you know, base or foundation. But as broadcast slash linear television has been declining in steady and in fact advancing declining numbers over the last decade, there's an increased challenge to the you know media investment community about how they find those people. And, you know, digital Right, came out obviously about 15, 20 years ago and in great scale. And that solves some of those challenges, but not really all because um, they say that a digital ad is viewed if it's it's if it's been downloaded for about two seconds. And so, you know, by definition, it's a grazing kind of medium. It doesn't necessarily have the engagement and reach that a lot of uh, advertisers are looking for. Uh, and then during the pandemic, Streaming came out as another sort of tool in the arsenal. And I think a lot of, uh, in the early days of, of the pandemic, a lot of advertisers felt, oh, well, this might be the answer to my problem if, if the linear television impressions keep declining. And I'm sort of at a diminishing return right now with my digital investments. Ah, here's streaming. Well, there's a couple of challenges with streaming that we've been learning about the last few years. And, you know, one, first of all, is the universe of ad-supported streaming is pretty still small. Right? Netflix announced they have about now 5 million uniques per month. And you think, okay, well, that's 60 million a year. We reach approximately 400 million a year just with the Screen Vision network, right? right? And so the scale is not really there. And then secondly, of course, they have a frequency problem where the same ad runs again and again. And then they have a third problem, which is people sign up for that monthly subscription. And now they can sort of get up and walk out of the room during the ad pods. And so... As we came into this week, we were well aware from our you know our pre-conversations with the advertising community that they the linear continues to erode, which is a massive challenge. They're reaching diminishing return with digital and streaming does not quite, you know, make up for that gap for the declining in linear. And so then we emerge back front and center as a real solve for that problem. So the, the first thing Rebecca I'll say is 
we really have more relevance, I think, in vitality than ever before with our, pl- our platform for the reach and the engagement that it provides an advertising plan. What I like about the, the concept as a whole, the sector as a whole, uh, when we look at it in terms of advertising, advertising, what does work, the primetime spots in advertising are always event-based. You mentioned it yourself, JP. Yeah. Linear is declining. The big disruption for streaming, streaming is disrupting television. It's not disrupting right. cinema, not disrupting theatrical. We're seeing that in the numbers. The exceptions when it comes to broadcast are events, the Super Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. The Grammy, something big. We work in an industry, theatrical, where we have an event every weekend. We sure do. Every weekend is that event-based opportunity to reach different demographics, to reach different people. One of the big parts of, uh, of being able to reach audiences is the fact that cinema audiences and moviegoers tend to be more multicultural, more diverse. And we know that brands today are trying to reach those consumers. Now, there are a lot of initiatives that Screen Vision Media announced during the upfronts, but there was one in particular with Kevin Hart's Heartbeat company that I found very interesting. Can we go into that a little bit and, and how that came together? Yes, absolutely. So again, as I look to, to uh, delve into the answer of this question, I, I again, we look at the the things that a cinema advertising asset provides to a media plan, right, to a marketer. And so, of course, we just touched on the fact that it brings really broad reach. We talked always about the engagement. We talk about the the captive and receptive audience. And I use this word often that there's something about when you have a movie-going experience, which is very different than movie-watching on a distracted device, you surrender to the mm-hmm. experience. And I like to use that word. You surrender and you you give more of yourself and your attention to that experience which creates a whole different mindset. And so those are the, the, the basic tenets that we offer that I think are very differentiating. The other thing that we offer, though, as you just touched on, Dan, is an incredibly valuable audience, right? So they're not just engaged. There's not just a lot of them. They're a very youthful. They're a very diverse audience. And so approximately, and you know this better than me, but I believe it's about one out of two theater tickets are, are sold to a non-white you know, customer. And so it's a blend of Hispanic and Asian and black and brown. And, you know, these diverse audiences really, you know, represent a very, you know, robust, large composition of the movie going audience that are so highly desired Mm -hmm. by marketers and advertisers. And so as we were looking to leverage that more fully to the advertising community, we looked around what we could do that we thought was really innovative, had great content and really spoke to or connected in a very authentic way to a diverse audience. And so we were introduced through some friends, mutual friends, to the Kevin Hart team. I personally have not met Mr. Kevin Hart yet, so I don't want to be too familiar. But we've certainly met the CEO of that company and and the executive team of Heartbeat Productions. And they're such an impressive, interesting group. And we started conversations about nine months ago. Rebecca, we were thinking about next year's upfront, but we were starting to think about, you know, how we could engage with them. Those conversations continued through the fall and into Sundance, where we had some meetings at Sundance with the team. And ultimately, we decided to start with something that didn't feel like we were trying to boil the ocean together, but was very focused and targeted. And that was sort of carving off or defining parts of our network that really reached or super reached, you know, that kind of those kind of diverse demos. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to provide that network access to the heartbeat team to provide them additional reach to the creative content that they do right on a monthly and weekly basis. They're doing all kinds of productions and we wanted to offer, you know, our, our inventory, our reach to their partnerships and advertising driven content partnerships. So that's one aspect 
The second really interesting aspect is we're going to try to co-create content together where it makes sense. And so we'll get in a sandbox and it's not overly defined yet and we don't want it to be. And we'll look for brand partners and it might come from brand partners that already are working with Heartbeat. And there's a couple there that I think some of you may have seen, which is Old Spice and uh, Chase Bank and so on. You know, we might get in the sandbox with some of those brands. We might not. By the way, I don't want to speak for the brands yet. We might bring our brands that we engage with on a very regular basis from our different Madison Avenue relationships. We might bring them into the screen vision slash heartbeat sandbox. And we're going to try and co-create along with the brands and the marketers and their branded content resources, something that feels really unique, probably long form, longer form, that feels really organic to the cinema experience. What's the value that you bring specifically in terms of reach to these younger demographics? And there's this TikTok deal. Now, um, yes. I'm, I'm, we're under 40, but we're not young. So I, I don't think either Daniel or myself are incredibly familiar with TikTok from a user perspective, but we are <laughs> very familiar uh, with, with the, the cinema space. So what are we going to be seeing from Screen Vision well, and TikTok? Well, you've just teed that up beautifully. So Heartbeat, I think, really leans into the diverse right aspects of our objectives and, and where we're heading increasingly you know, as a platform and youthful, right, represents another big, you know, area that we're trying to focus on. And so you can see from those two partnerships, Heartbeat and TikTok, that we're trying to lean, uh, TikTok helps us also lean into a more youthful uh, demographic, not that Heartbeat also doesn't lean into a youthful demographic, because it does, but TikTok is clearly, you know, symbolic and telegraphic of, you know, Gen Z and a lot of things that are happening out there. And so very similar in that with this content partnership as well, we're looking to get into a sandbox with the TikTok creators and marketers, as well as brands and our, you know, creator experts in our house, the Screen Vision house, and work together to develop very, I think, customized, bespoke TikTok-y content that, you know, comes from a user-generated experience, but brings them into more of a, a marketing creation, you know, framework. And so I don't want to give too much away at this point, except... It's certainly going to, this whole platform or this idea or this partnership is going to be coming initially from those people that are big participants in TikTok and trying to tap into that and tap into their user-generated content, you know, abilities in a way that feels really a good fit for certain brands and the cinema, again, content experience. So you've got diverse, you've got youthful. Of course, these both these content partnerships cross over because TikTok is also diverse while being youthful. And Kevin Hart's group is also youthful while being diverse. But for us, that's really the defining impetus for those two partnerships. And you have to find those young audiences where they are, right? You do. I think that's what I love about cinema advertising, where there's a direct correlation between streaming value of theatrical in how they support cinema advertising networks like Screen Vision Medias. You see aspects like social media platforms like that's TikTok. Right. They see the value that the big screen can bring. And I love to see those partnerships come in during these pre-shows. It's such a good point, uh, Dan and Rebecca, because they complement the other, right? People who tend to be high, uh, highly digitally engaged, highly entertainment engaged, they're big consumers and, and highly involved with a lot of the content. So, you know, people who go to a lot of movies also tend to stream a lot, right? People who tend to stream a lot tend to go to a lot of movies. People who are engaged in TikTok and user-generated content tend to be highly involved in the entertainment you know, and, and cultural, you know, world and zeitgeist. And so it all just kind of feeds the other. And we're just trying to extend what we offer our platform more into those audiences and create an easier on-ramp, I would say, into those worlds. 
for all the attention that you get on these spots, on these advertisements. I mean, you can't take it for granted. You have to provide good content, like you were talking about some longer form stuff with Heartbeat, things that are interesting, things that people want to maybe get there a little bit early to see. You know, That's you can't right. just kind of rest on the same old, same old tactics. That's right. exactly right. We have to keep it fresh because, you know, people go to the movies, a lot of people go to the movies six, nine, ten times a year. And we want our pre-show to feel as fresh as the content that they're also viewing from the Hollywood studios. So we want to continually challenge ourselves to reinvent, to embark on new partnerships. We don't, we don't want to do 50 new things a year, but we sure do want to do a handful of new things every year. So it shows that we're pushing ourselves and they might not all work and that's okay too, but it's good for us to keep trying and keeping the, our own pre-show content fresh. Well, one of the big aspects of next year is finding a new benchmark on where the domestic box office is. Now, mm-hmm. there was a lot made about the decline in 2020, a little bit over $2 billion, obviously, right? But it's been an upward trajectory, steady upward trajectory since. We went from two to four, from four to seven. Yes. I'm going to ask you the big question, JP. Everyone's yeah. putting their bet in the ring. You guys are looking at forecasting here. How much do we recover? This year. And is it fair to even compare our recovery to 2019 yet? You know, I do. I think it is. I think it's it's good that we start really looking forward and, and start measuring ourselves against, you know, the all-time high water mark. And so I think, if I remember correctly, 2019 was about, was it about 1.2 billion tickets sold, somewhere in that range? Mm-hmm. I think that, first I'll answer the question this way, which is, will we ever reach and or surpass 2019? Is that a fair comparison I always talk about it, with all the changes around the business? And I think absolutely we will. I'll go on record and say, I do think in the not too few distant years, we will reach and exceed the amount of tickets that were purchased, sold in 2019. So we'll exceed 1.2 or 1.22 billion tickets sold. Now, that may take two or three years in my estimation. So then it's really just a question in my mind of, Okay, well, how long does it take then to, to get back close to that 1.22 billion? And are we going to do it in this year? No, in 2023, we won't. But I think we'll be about 85% mm-hmm. of tickets purchased this year of what were purchased in 2019. That's sort of my number I'm going with. And it feels good to me to go in with that number because I, I use a couple of data points. The fact that, and I mentioned this at the upfront, the John Wick the Mm -hmm. scream that these sequels have outperformed the original franchises. So that leads you to think, okay, there's something special going on. Then you look at super Mario brothers, which is now just by a whisker. That's the second highest animated film of all time. So I think this year we're just going to continue to see really strong acceleration in the growth. So I think 85% of 2019 in terms of tickets sold feels like my sort of bet I'll put on the table. <laughs> but it's a good baseline. I think you, you mentioned really good titles as examples because the big story last year was the tentpoles work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Avatar The Way of Water works. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home works. Top Gun Maverick works. We need That was a question we needed to answer. We had that answered. What we're seeing this year, as you note, is the franchises that don't have to be huge global hits, Scream, yes. John Wick, those are hitting all-time highs in revenue here in North America. And beyond that, new franchises. That's right. We're finding new benchmarks for those as well. So it's not just the old hits that are always going to work. It's new properties that are launching exclusively to theaters, even under smaller windows than before, are hitting heights. Like you just said, it's Super Mario Brothers, number two highest grossing animated title of all time. Yes, and we've had some, as we mentioned before, changes to the business. And so when you see Scream and John Wick and it was uh, Creed also, 
that all outperform the originals. They, they're doing this with shorter windows. Yep. So, you know, they're, we're not just, you know, exceeding the, the originals, these sequels. They're doing it with shorter, you know, theatrical exclusive windows. So that's interesting. And then, as you just talked about, the broad fare is really filling in. And so I was as excited to see Air, mm-hmm. right, as a movie as I was Super Mario Brothers. And, and by the way, I have a 20-year-old son, one, you know, a couple children, but he, by the way, as an example, went and saw Air, and he went and saw Super Mario Brothers, a 20-year-old, right? So that was interesting. So there's just a lot going on out there that's filling in, and so many people are excited to get back to that active movie going. And then finally, I'll just say, you know, as a student of the business, which we all are, and I know you guys cover this every week, there was one silver lining of this pandemic that I can think of, and that is the fact that a lot of clouds that were on the horizon that made people nervous have now been cleared up or a lot of questions were answered and fast forward. And so before the pandemic, there was a lot of concern around what streaming could do to the business. There was a lot of talk about will windows shorten and what will that do to the business? Well, those two questions have been answered. They've been asked and answered in fast forward in a three-year time frame. And so everyone likes more certainty. And so studios and distribution chiefs and, and uh, exhibition heads and Wall Street investors, more certainty has been granted coming out of the pandemic across, around a few key questions. And that is a big relief to many of us. And that's what they lean into. And those are the questions they ask, which is, if I'm going to bet my advertising dollars with you, I want to know there's some certainty. And you know what was hard on our business, and you open this up, is 20, of course, was devastatingly horrendous for obviously people on a health basis, but for our business and for the advertising business. But in some ways, 2021 was worse for the cinema advertising business. And why do I say that? I say that because while exhibition began to get its footing back, there wasn't a lot going on, but there were a few titles building. They were starting to be able to pay some bills and get people coming in the door. The advertising community was for the large part in 2021, still very risk off. Mm -hmm. And so they just didn't feel there was enough stability or certainty to place their investment bets with our industry. And so we had people returning, we had minimum guarantees we had to begin covering, and yet we didn't have really the pipeline of advertising revenue. It was a very, it was another very difficult year in an entirely different way for us. And the numbers are showing it. I think that confidence of, like you say, JP, that the numbers are there to show that the questions have been answered. Yeah. You know, the big scary monsters that was under the bed that's going to get us, the shorter windows, streaming, PVOD. It's tried. Day and date. Oh. Day and yeah. date. Yes. It was tried. <laughs> Guess what? It didn't work. We had it answered. Even under a shorter window, traditional theatrical works. And it's uh, it's something that don't take our word for it. Look at your advertisers that's and look exactly at that recovery. Right. That's exactly right. And we're seeing that recovery, particularly, as I said, from Q1 now onward. We It's been choppy. The last mm-hmm. couple of years for the re- some of the reasons I just mentioned. But that was our largest attended advertising upfront event on Tuesday evening at the Hammerstein Ballroom. And, th- you know, there's a reason for that. We sent out as many invitations as we had the, the years prior. I think people are really ready in the advertising community now, just like people have been ready in the movie-going community mm-hmm. to return. They're now ready to return and reinvest. It's not going to happen overnight, but we are on the trajectory going the right way. And that was John Partilio speaking to myself and my colleague, Rebecca Polly here for the Box Office Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Earlier in today's episode, you heard from my colleague at the box office company, Romeo Duchenne. Don't forget to stick around for next week's episode when Romeo is coming back on to join me and our colleague, Russ Fisher, from the box office studios to go over every single entry in the Transformers saga 
Guys, I hadn't seen a single one of these movies until Romeo said I had to watch them all before the podcast. I did, and boy, do we have opinions on them. Don't forget to tune in next Thursday's episode. The best way to do that is by subscribing. The Box Office Podcast is produced by The Box Office Company in collaboration with Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for your support, and we'll see you again next week.